Morning, everybody. Surprise. <laughs> given, the, uh, given the stage right, folks, some, some, uh, some attention this morning. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're going to spend some time today talking about, about Jonah, um, our, our, our self-proclaimed chicken of, of faithfulness here is still with us. So um, I want to start this morning by actually reading you guys something and talking to you a little bit about, uh, about other aspects, I guess, of life. So listen to this. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Those words, uh, as kind of humorous and, and ridiculous as they might seem to some of our ears uh, were important to me as a kid. Uh, I think I read The Hobbit uh, right around sixth grade, and something in my life really changed because of, of that story. And what I wanted to start this morning talking about was actually story and, and the power of, of a story. And I just typed up some other words of stories, and I just want to read them. These are different, different stories that maybe we've heard throughout, throughout uh, the year, if you paid attention at all in senior English. Um, Through the fence, between the curling flower spaces, I could see them hitting. They were coming toward where the flag was, and I went along the fence. Luster was hunting in the grass by the flower tree. They took the flag out, and they were hitting. That's A Sound in the Fury by William Faulkner. Cormac McCarthy writes this, When he woke in the woods in the dark and the cold of the night, he'd reach out to touch the child sleeping beside him. Nights dark beyond darkness and the days more gray, each one than what had gone before, like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the, wor the world. That's from his novel, The Road, which is one of the most depressing stories you'll ever read. How about this? Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Anybody know what that is? Shakespeare, Richard III. And then uh, the town of Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, lies on the shore against Adams Hill, looking east across the blue-green, so on and so forth. That's Lake Wobegon by Garrison Keillor. There's something about story that has a power and a potential unlike any other force in the world. Um, when I read The Hobbit, or, or when any of us read a good story, there's something about it, if it's good at all, that doesn't just entertain us, it, it draws us into it. It draws us into its world. And if it's at all good, as we enter the world, we begin to identify with certain characters. And we sometimes even start to imagine like 
what those characters might say to us or, or how we might inhabit that world if we were that character. A great story, I wanna suggest, actually has the power to change our lives because we start to maybe want to be the characters of that story. I, I'll own up to the fact that like after The Hobbit, you know, I read Lord of the Rings. Um, man, I wanted to be Aragorn. I, I feel like I'm probably a little bit more like Pippin. Um, but I am working on at least the beard that Viggo Mortensen had. Um, so story changes us. I, I believe that. I, I believe that with all, all my heart. And we have a story, you know, as people of faith. Like, we have a story. This, this collection of books is not merely uh, rules and regulations. It's not merely in, instructions on how we sort of get to heaven or how we know God. It is a story. And so I wanted to start today with talking about how our story begins begins in the book of Genesis, and God creates all of the world. He creates light. He creates earth, sky, plants, animals, everything. And then you might know these words. He, we get to chap, uh, verse 26 in chapter 1 of our story. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this part of our story, I would say, the takeaway is God created us and he created us in his image. You hear the repetition of the words there. He created them in his image, in his image. He created them. He created them. And so I believe that that is a formative statement in the story that I'm trying to, to live out, that I am created, I'm not an accident, and I'm created in a particular way, in the image of God. Now, we're in the middle of another story, right? The story with, with Jonah. And so I want to turn over to the text of Jonah because we're not just in the middle of the Genesis to Revelation type of story. We're in the middle of this very particular story. And uh, I just want to start off with reading the text of chapter 3 and, uh, and start to talk about it. Now, here we are in the story, right? Jonah has spent three days in the belly of a fish or a whale, and he's been spat out on the beach, uh, covered in I don't even know what. Um, and so he's sitting there, and the text starts like this. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. All right, so now the text starts exactly, uh, at least in the Hebrew, almost exactly like chapter one starts. So the writer of Jonah is giving us a clue that like this is a restart to the story. Jonah is giving a chance, given a chance to start his story over again. 
And uh, in verse three, you know, it starts off with this loaded phrase, this time, and you know, if, you're, if you know the story, you should, there's a pause there. This time, what are you gonna do, Jonah? This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command. And part of me, because I've lived with this story now so deeply for a few weeks, I just wanna cheer for Jonah. Good job, chicken of faithfulness, I'm so bad. So Jonah does what he's supposed to do. You know, we talked about how the word of the Lord comes, the, the prophetic sort of formulation is God speaks. It says, get up. And the first time Jonah got up, right? But he went the wrong way. Well, this time Jonah gets up, just like he's supposed to do. And it says he obeys. So he goes, uh, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. And so much of the, the, the text in this is designed to get us to understand that this is a restart. Arise, go, call. Just like in chapter one. So Jonah gets up and he starts to go. Now, as we move into the story, the same themes, many of the same themes just keep coming up again. There's a word in the text that describes Nineveh. In, in our translation, it says large. In other translations, it says Nineveh is a great city. And the word that, uh, that word in Hebrew that is translated great is, we're gonna spend a lot of time in Hebrew, so you guys just get ready today, is this word Elohim. So let me hear you say Elohim. Elohim. Elohim means big. It means large. It means great. But what Elohim also means is it can also mean to the Lord. So not only is God saying, Jonah, get up and go to this great city of Nineveh. God is reminding Jonah, Jonah, Nineveh is great to me. Nineveh may be scary to you, Jonah, but it belongs to me. It always has. God is saying, I made Nineveh and I made Nineveh great. So Jonah, you don't have to be scared of Nineveh. Go to it. And all throughout this book, and, and I would even suggest in the story of God, there is this, this uh, idea that God is saying, what you think is outside of my realm, of my rule, isn't really. I made it all. So he gets up. Jonah gets up and he heads to Nineveh. So he gets to Nineveh and then the text picks up in verse uh, four. Now we're told that Nineveh is so large it takes three days to get across it. Jonah gets into it, just gets into it the very first day. And he says, uh, shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And it's like, man, Jonah has like, He's put on his big boy pants today. So like he's gone from being terrified of Nineveh to, to walking straight into it and pronouncing this message. And there's a, there's a piece of it on the surface that we're like, man, Jonah is obeying. He's obeying with everything. He's done exactly what God has told him to do, except for a few subtle things. The first thing is that God never told him to say this. God never told him to say 40 days, and this is not so important to us because words sometimes, we play a little bit loose with words. But in the Bible, and especially for prophets, 
words matter. So let me show you what another prophet said actually to Nineveh. If you go a few pages, a few pages over in your Bible, there's a prophet named Nahum. And Nahum also said things against Nineveh. And I want to read to you uh, actually out of ver- chapter 1. This is verse 14. And this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians in Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your gods. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. Now, the operative phrase for us is not despicable, as humorous as I find that. The operative phrase for us today is the way it starts. This is what the Lord says. Over and over again, when prophets make a a statement, particularly a statement of judgment, and particularly a statement to uh, people who are outside of Israel, it always accompanies, this is what the Lord says. If you've grown up in church, you might have heard it said this way, thus saith the Lord, which is a phrase I use a lot in my house but my kids never (laughs) respond. Jonah doesn't say this. He leaves this out. And in fact, also in his statement is uh, where you have whole texts of, of judgment against other cities. Jonah's pronouncement of judgment is five words in Hebrews. 40 days, you're gonna be overturned. You're gonna be destroyed. But actually it gets even kind of a little bit more hazy Because the word that Jonah uses for destroyed is actually a word called hafak. Let me see here say that, hafak. Hafak doesn't just mean destroyed. Hafak can also mean turned around. It can mean changed. So what this does is that when he walks into Nineveh, It's one thing to come in and literally say, your city's gonna be destroyed. It's a little bit lesser of a blow to walk into a city and go, hey, 40 days from now, you're gonna be really different. But essentially, in the language, this is what Jonah says. You're gonna be destroyed. You're gonna be very different. And so there's a piece of this that the Ninevites probably found this kind of funny. Hey, we're gonna be different. All right. But what's crazy is to look at the way they respond. So in verse, uh, in verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God's message. From the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. So no matter what Jonah meant, no matter how Jonah kind of hedged his bets, what the people heard was, you better get your act straight. So what they hear is this, it's time to kind of reevaluate your life. So we're told they declared a fast and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. So the people start this. And then we're told about their leader. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and he took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. 
I want to pause there for just a second. So the king is sitting on his throne and there's this great sort of rhythmic move that he has. So the king is sitting, he's very prominent, right? In this place of honor. And then when he hears this pronouncement, he's like, well, something has to change. So he gets up from his place of honor, told that he sits on a, a, a pile of ashes. I didn't really want to put ashes on the stage. So he, puts, he gets in this chair that's not quite honorable. And then he says this, no one, not even the animals of your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. So what he does here is respond. And we're also meant to kind of understand this as yet another contrast with Jonah's behavior. When this outsider, this king of this violent people, when he hears what God says, he immediately gets up from his place of honor, takes off the robes that represent his power and his authority, and he humbles himself. And I want to pause here just a minute to talk about these words that, that pop up in this part of the story. Fasting, ashes, putting on burlap, putting on clothes of mourning. We can get hung up in what this means and, and we can get kind of have a lot of questions about well, what does it mean to, to fast or to put on burlap. I, I went to... I was thinking about going to buy some burlap outfits, but they're pretty hard to find, even in Tallahassee. And I want to suggest to you this morning that what is going on here and what we should take away from, from this middle sort of uh, scene in this book is that sometimes when you get shown the truth of your life, you need to do things that wake yourself up. You see, burlap is just simply a really, really uncomfortable garment. And you put it on and instead of like being, you know, comfortable and, 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 and breathable fabric, you're just, this stuff is rubbing against your skin and it irritates you. Fasting is a way to sort of deprive yourself of some of the things that you just take for granted. Like I can just eat a meal all the time. And some of us can just eat and eat and eat and, and it and it's uh, sort of anesthetizes us to maybe the reality of our lives when we sit on ashes or when we get off places of, of power and we humble ourselves, it, it's really merely basically saying, I need to kind of set aside the things in my life that give me the daily significance that I'm used to. And as I thought about this, I really thought that it really revolves around these two concepts, that responding to the truth of God revolves around, revolves around humility and attention. And they're, and they're intertwined. They're intertwined because the things that give us significance, the things that give us power, the things that give us prestige, that, that, that fill our pocketbooks, that fill our stomachs, all can just kind of numb us to the realities of the truth of our lives sometimes. And so when the prophet shows up or when we just get exposed to truth, sometimes the best thing we can do is go, I need to pay attention to my life. So I'm gonna make myself a little bit more uncomfortable. 
And we can laugh, and it is kind of funny to think about every animal in a city putting on garments of mourning. It's pretty funny to think about, well, you know, I just got a dog. Hello, his name's Merlin. You know, if we declare Merlin, you're fasting. Don't ask me why, you're just fasting. But you know what animals represented to these people? It represented their economic way of life. And sometimes when we get confronted with God's truth, we need to say, it's not enough for us to process with our head and our heart. We need to kind of process this with our checkbooks and our debit cards. And we need to process this with the things that give us, that make us feel good about ourselves. Sometimes we just need to press pause on our life and go, God, you've got my attention. What do you want me to do? Because it's so easy to hear from God, but then to distract ourselves, you know, by another trip to Momo's or another trip to the bar or another trip to the mall. And all this is basically doing is to say, sometimes we just have to press pause. And we have to press pause financially. We have to press pause in terms of the prestige. We have to kind of lay all of our lives out there. So before we get to the last moment, I want to kind of talk again about story. Because Jesus was no different than us. Jesus uh, was drawn in by the story he was living. And in so many ways, Jesus lives the same story we live. He lives Genesis 1. But what you see in Jesus's life is not only does he inhabit a story, not only does he identify with characters in the story, but Jesus likes to blow up those categories. He likes to, to change them and show oftentimes that something deeper is going on in the story than maybe what we realize. In the Gospels, uh, Jesus actually references Jonah a bit. Um, in a couple of the Gospels, he references specifically the sign of Jonah. The religious leaders come to him and they're like, give us a sign, Jesus. Show us that you are who you say he is. And he's like, you're not getting anything except the sign of Jonah. It's like, you know, grumpy grandpa Jesus. He says, you're, getting, you're just gonna get the sign of Jonah. And I wanna tell you that scholars aren't settled on exactly what the sign of Jonah is because Jonah itself never says, oh, this is the sign of Jonah. Okay, so Jesus refers to something. And then right in that immediately literary context, he says, this is one way of the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. I'm gonna be in the belly of the earth for three days. And then I'm gonna come back. So one aspect of the sign of Jonah is Jesus is going to be resurrected. And then in that same conversation, he also says another aspect of the sign of, the jo of Jonah is repentance, because Nineveh got it and they turned their lives around. And in the same way, he's expecting the people who's hearing him, who are hearing him to turn their lives around. But I also wanna kind of draw out another way that Jesus inhabits the story of Jonah. And it's a really interesting uh, series of stories that happens in the Gospel of Mark between, gospel, between chapter four and chapter seven. I wanna show you, uh, you know it's me, so it's a map. So uh, sorry, if this is a map of Galilee. Uh, this is 
the center of Jesus's ministry operations when he first starts doing ministry. Now, there's this big uh, lake called the Sea of Galilee in the middle. On the, on the uh, western side of the lake, where you see the words Caperna and, and Magdala, this is the Jewish side of the lake. Okay, this is where the population is, is overwhelmingly Jewish. This is where Jesus spends a lot of his time. But in, God, in the Gospel of Mark, between chapters 4 and 7, Jesus starts doing something very, very interesting. And Mark wants us to note it. Jesus starts traveling across the sea. And across the sea on the east side of the lake is the Gentile side of, of, of things. Jews and Gentiles at Jesus' time did not like each other. The Gentiles were the outsiders. They were the enemy. But in Mark's gospel, he wants you to know Jesus is crossing the lake. And he notes every time, Jesus is going across the lake. Jesus is going across the lake. He's going across the lake. And something very interesting happens in Mark chapter four. And I just want to read this to you. This is the first trip. So as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although some other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Now listen, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. What does this sound like? It sounds like Jonah chapter one. And Mark wants you to know that. So in the same way, but not quite the same way, Jonah is told to go to the outsiders. He refuses. He goes the other way. A storm comes up. Jonah is sleeping in the back of the boat out of apathy. Jesus takes the story of Jonah and flips it. Jesus is not told, but we, we know he wants to go. God wants him to go to the outsiders. Jesus goes to the outsider. He's asleep in the back of the boat. He's the faithful prophet. He's the contrast of Jonah. Now his disciples come to him shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. So in another contrast to the book of Jonah, the storm just rages and rages and rages. And in Jonah, we know that God sends the storm. In, in Mark, Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind. And so in the same way that God sends the storm, Jesus calms the storm. And the language is such that when, when Jesus speaks a word, you know, I, I've spent a little time on the water. And even when the wind stops blowing on the water, it takes a while for the waves to calm down, don't, doesn't it? Jesus speaks one word and we're told that the whole thing just kind of becomes smooth. So here's what I would suggest that Jesus is also saying the sign of Jonah is. The sign of Jonah is also that Jesus is in control of the wind and the waves, but the sign of Jonah is also that God loves the outsiders. That Jesus says, we are going across the lake as many times as it takes to give the message of God to the outsiders, to the violent, to the people who don't look like us. Well, what's the message of God? 
I want to suggest that it's, it's right here in verse 10 of Jonah. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. The word for changed is yet another Hebrew word. It's the word naham. Naham is a, a word. You understand, have to understand that Hebrew is what we call a word-poor language. We're always encountering words in Hebrew that mean like five different things. The word naham means change your mind. It means relent. It also means repent. Now, I'm not suggesting that God repents in the same way that we repent. I'm not suggesting that God is ever capable of doing evil. But what I am suggesting is that God turns. Because repent just means to turn around. So God sees what's going on in Nineveh. And he relents. And when you relent from wishing destruction on somebody, that is the definition of forgiveness. That forgiveness uh, has wrapped inside it a release, a release from the desire to do harm to somebody. It's a release from the desire to get even. And in Jonah chapter 10, we're told that as Nineveh turns to God, God turns to Nineveh. And as the outsiders turn to God, God turns and relents and changes his mind. Now, if we are made in the image of God, if our story in Genesis 1 tells us that God has created us in his image, then that means we are created for forgiveness. Not just to receive it, but to give it. That we are not just to be a people who take the turning of God. We are a people who need to learn because it's our image to be like our Father in heaven and to offer forgiveness to others and to offer forgiveness to ourselves. Because sometimes the people that we need to most forgive and most release from the desire to get even is us. That's our story. Now, this might be utterly pointless. In 1999, if you wanted to listen to music, you had one of these things, right? Anybody know what this is? It's a disc man. And so uh, I, I had one of these. And if you traveled, you had to bring this with you. Like you're, you had to have like your boss, you know, thing of like CDs, you know, and I'd be on the airplane. I had to bust this out of my backpack. I'm like, man, I got like, in 1999, this was the best-selling calculator. This is a Texas Instruments TI-83 Plus. It does not belong to me, so don't get excited. It belongs <laughs> to my wife. So this is why you listen to music, 1999. 
This is what you wanted if you wanted to do some heavy lifting mathematical work. Well, a few years later, you know, you, this came along, right? This is a first-generation iPod, held like a 1,000 songs. Then a few years after that, another iPod came along. This is my 130 gig, so it holds about 30,000 songs. So in 1999, to listen to music, this is what you had, and this, and, and every manner. In, in 2000, by 2011, anyway, this is what you had. In 2011, this is still the best-selling calculator. Sometimes things need to change. Sometimes things need to be improved upon. But other, every once in a while, you get something that doesn't need improving. In 10 years, less than 10 years, technology for listening to music radically changed. Technology for graphing calculators, not so much. Because it worked. And one of the things that just struck me with this story is that our story of forgiveness just works. It doesn't need to be changed. God still turns when we turn. We have like our own version of the TI-83+. So where are we in this story? I said that a great story uh, you identify with. So I'm just going to be a little bit honest here. Where I identify with this story is, is I connect with Jonah an awful lot. And I'm going to tell you right now, you know where my Nineveh was? It was inside. My Nineveh was being terrified at looking at parts of my life that I really didn't want to look at. And God said, Eric, you need to go there. And for years I said, I'm going to hang out in Tarshish a little bit longer, God. But God gave me a second call. And eventually I stood up and I said, God, I'm ready to go there. I'll go to the deep places inside me that I don't want to look at. That's where I connect with this story. But I connect in other ways too, because once I get to Nineveh, you know, I connect with this king. I connect with the destructiveness of, of pride. And I connect with the idea that sometimes in my life, it's not enough for me to go, yeah, God, I, I did wrong. I know that. I know that but that sometimes to wake up to the reality of God in my life, I need to go, I need to press pause on some areas that I don't really wanna press pause on. So I gotta take some things off the table that I like on the table. And I need to rearrange my life and get humble so that I can really acknowledge what God is trying to tell me about my life. And then I'm coming to terms with God's role in the story as well of forgiveness for myself and for other folks. And I can't answer this for you. I can't answer where you find yourself in this story. But I think our story is the best story. And I think that there's always room for us to find ourselves in the story. I'm gonna ask us all to stand up and the band's gonna come up. We're gonna play a song that just talks about the surrender and... Uh, the appreciation of the opportunity for forgiveness to God. And I don't want us to just kind of go past it without realizing that that forgiveness needs to flow through us. That as we receive forgiveness, we need to be a people of forgiveness. So uh, would you guys bow your heads and just pray with me as, as we uh, just prepare to respond to God?